a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, I'm delving deeper into one of the most desirable markets in the world for Aussie business, China. With such a large population and a booming economy to boot, China can present a goldmine of opportunities for business owners. But I know from experience that the landscape can be tricky to navigate. So, across these next five episodes, I'll speak to a business owner who has succeeded in China and an expert to find out the biggest challenges Aussies face when trying to make it in the so-called Middle Kingdom and, most importantly, how to overcome them. For years as the airport economist, travelling to over 60 countries to speak at conferences, whenever the conference was sort of over and I'd be mingling around the coffee stand, I was always asked one question. What do you think about China? What do you think about China? China? Now the question is always what do you think about President Donald Trump? Since his 2016 election victory, the response to Trump has partly been about style as much as substance. The brash speaking style, the manic use of Twitter, has made the world nervous. But now it's about substance as much as style, particularly in terms of trade, with the tariff hikes on many major trading partners and the so-called trade war with China. So what is a trade war and will a US-China trade war spark global tensions and hurt both protagonists and third parties like Australia and ultimately the world economy? Joining me now is Peter Friedman, founder of Rode Microphones, who's not letting Trump or Xi Jinping get in the way of business. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Now, tell us the story of Rode Microphones. Um, Rode started, um, would be about 1990. I've been pro-audio all my life. My dad started the company with my mum in 67. Dad passed away in 87. And as a genius young guy, I was able to do everything I wanted to do. He couldn't stop me, borrowed a lot of money, like you do in the late 80s, and smashed it against the wall and ended up owing a million dollars, which could have been 20 billion. I was only making 20 grand a year. So it was through desperation. So is it true that you started Rode Microphones as a way of getting out of financial trouble? There really wasn't even a Rode mic then. It was just I had this Chinese mic that I could get cheaply, modify it a bit, had a sales guy go out with it, and he said, yeah, there's some interest in this. How did you set up this company from this position? You just roll on. I didn't know it was going to be any good. I thought I could sell 10 of those. Came up with a name. He said, uh, oh, these will sell as fast as a rat runs up a drain pipe. So I thought, oh, yeah, rodent. Oh, road NT1. Yeah, so Hence you got the name rodent. T- don't tell anybody that one. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep it secret. Yeah, just well, it's it's you, and you, I. Mean, uh, you and me and the listeners. There you go. But it, it expanded. And then we started selling 20, 40, 50. And I thought, oh, this is, this is something. I really found out it was something was when I went to the States a couple of years later and I managed to sell a store there, a company called West LA Music. I sold them 100 and I yeah, walked out there with tears in my eyes because you can't sell them anything. And I thought you got something. This right is place at the right time. This is about 1990 you, you did uh, that this? That would have been 91, I'd say. 91? Yeah. Yeah. It was a recession in Australia, but you were yeah. doing yeah. it right in the USA. With a backpack. Well, I was walking around with a backpack on and... Uh, Drinking Jack Daniels, eating bad pizza, living in a hotel. Some of you have probably been killed in. The backpacker entrepreneur. Mate, that's it. I love it. I love it. 
And where do you sell around the world? Which which markets? Oh, only 117 countries for eight, Is that all? eight, eight thousand dealers. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, we were nobody, and now we're one of the largest in the world. And you started in the USA. Was that your first market? We did a little bit here. Um, that was uh, the Chinese market that we modified. And um, then the US is what broke it. And I was lucky. I mean, I don't really, the luck thing, you know, opportunity meets preparation and all that. You've got to put yourself out there. But things happen too that I think, wow, that's that's amazing. And the company, Elisa's actually, who broken up, they were the biggest in the game. They took my product on for the new company because they had nothing and they put a disproportionate amount of marketing behind it and open the curtain, that's what I call it over there, because you can't get in. You can stand at a trade show for five years and you're just ignored and then you go home. The US is a hard one. How would you compare the USA to China? Uh, as far as getting in there, uh, it, they're all long-term. I've, I've been in China for a long time. I mean, we have a big marketing team there in Shenzhen. We do uh, more trade marketing, have a great distributor. We're opening up a, actually a store in Shenzhen uh, by the end of the year to do, um, you know, wedding is huge over there, but to do gear, all sorts of gear. But it's one of the biggest markets in the world and I, I would say it'll outdo the US uh, within a couple of years for us. Now, there's big headlines about US-China trade tensions. You're in both. How do you think, you know, the trade war, even the trade tensions would, would play out for a business like yours? Well, I mean, it's interesting. We uh, we have obviously free trade agreement with the US, so you know we, we're competitive there. But I I've never worried. I don't, I don't want any trade barriers or, or competitive things for me. I like open playing fields because I'm really good at it, and I can beat anybody anyway. You know, I, we have no labour. We sell into China. We're better quality, and lower price than anybody in China could make. I don't think it's healthy for the world in, in uh, general to have this sort of fighting going on. It, there's a lot of sabre rattling, but it's, it's still dangerous. So, yeah, I could make more money short term. I don't want it because what would happen is it could hit the world with a recession. And then what happens? Then we all suffer. So we don't need it. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. But I don't gamble. I, I never said there would be a Brexit. I never said Trump would get in. You know, I was bet against all of it. Hey, man, how can you tell what's going to happen? So in your view, we'd all lose in a trade war? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's instability, um, absolute instability. You know, right now it's a very interesting time. They have the highest uh, stock market in 11 and a half years. The amount of VC capital here, ev- actually everywhere, it's, it, they're awash with it. Um, it's, it's an interesting time, but will there be a downturn? Of course it will. I've seen four of them. Do you think that even if you made some positive gain to your business in the short term with a trade war... You really don't want it because ultimately it would be bad for your overall business. hundred percent. You know, we don't look for instability anywhere. Um, I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't need any extra 15%, you know, greater benefit for me that somebody else gets hit with some duty. No, it, it's not right. Now, the trade war has been impacting the, the Australian dollar, the Aussie dollar. How does the changes in the exchange rate affect your business? Well, it's an interesting one. I've seen uh, under 50 cents and I've seen a dollar 10 and each time, I mean, of course, when it drops, I sell everything in US dollars. So when a dollar drops, yeah, I'll make more money, can double my money. But uh, when it went over, I thought once, if it goes to a dollar, I can't cope. And then it went to a dollar 10. You can, you can cope with anything. You just become more competitive. You, you look at your costs. You just sharpen your pencil with it. 
I can't affect the interest rates, or the dollar rather, neither can our government, nobody can. It's just something you live with. Yeah, I, I did try something, you said, oh, you, why don't you hedge, and I did that once, and I had the, probably the only margin call that's ever happened, I hid under a desk, you know. It didn't, it didn't go through, but no, I'm sorry, I'm not a gambler. And so what do you think is going to happen next with these trade tensions? Do you think it's going to get more serious? I, I, you know, it will, I, what's my guess? I, it'll resolve itself. Um, there is a lot of posturing. It's political. Um, they're going to have to work together. They need each other. You know, there's massive trade between the, the United States and China, and they're going to resolve it, I think. I, but I would also say, as a good negotiator, uh, Trump's probably doing some pretty smart moves if he realises it by pushing for more than he wants, and then he'll get something that's uh, quite equitable, you know? There has been some things that have been all one way. I don't, I don't think we should be doing that. But we need China and we need the market there and we need to import from them. They're not competitive though. I mean, I go, I was there recently. It's not cheap to make things in China. I'm cheaper here. What they have is everything around them. You know, you can go to Shenzhen, for example, which is the electronics area, and there's a thousand companies doing everything. You don't have to find one here, one there. I had to do it all myself here. That's why we're a unique situation. We're totally backward, vertically integrated. We've got all the gear. You don't need that in China. What would be the best result for your business? It would be peace rather than war? Yeah, stability in the world economy. Then people uh, have money and they buy product. If something goes bad with a recession, people pull their head in. Now, I'm lucky I am in that toy area. So, yeah, they pull their head in. My dad used to say to me, when times are bad, people go out and enjoy themselves. And when times are good, people go out and enjoy themselves. They mightn't buy the new car or they mightn't buy the house, whatever, but that hits them as well. Builders, you know, the materials, all the big things get hit, which flows on it. It affects the world. So, Peter, what would you say to other small businesses thinking about doing business in China? Just get on a plane and go there. That's it. Whether it's China or America or England, you'll learn everything. I mean, you don't sit and get business here and you can't do business plans about something like that. You go there, you ask, you see how competitive you are, you'll find out in seconds. Get on a plane. You know, it's shoe leather. That's how I've done it. Peter Friedman, thanks for your time. Great to hear about your business. And indeed, pleasure. We've heard from the business. Now let's speak with the expert. Andrew Parker is leader of PwC Australia's Asia practice. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Well, when President Trump got elected, we expected some fireworks on Twitter. But these these tariff changes are real, aren't they? Yes, they certainly are. And um, I think, you know, the reality is they've probably caught quite a lot of people by surprise. Um, you know, we, we knew that Trump had um, had some very strong views about trade and very strong views, particularly about China. Uh, but I think, you know, for one, I was quite surprised at, at just how quickly he moved to uh, to address, you know, his concerns about China and 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 actually the force with which he's addressed them. In some ways, you know, there was a view even before Trump that China had been perhaps taking the US and the rest of the world for a free free ride, you know, on market access, intellectual property and so on. So do you think there's some quiet support in the wings for what Trump is doing as a bit of a battering ram? Oh, I think you could say almost certainly that, uh, you know, this is, there is bipartisan support, particularly in Washington, um, for addressing the issues that have been, you know, that Trump has raised. 
You could even go to Europe and find actually the Europeans have, um, particularly the Germans and, and French, um, you know, have very similar concerns. I guess where the differences lie in is how do you go about addressing those issues? And of course, Trump has taken a very, very um, heavy line to addressing those issues outside of the WTO frameworks. Um, and I think that that's raised a few worries for people. Because ultimately, a rules-based international trading system gives everyone certainty. And if it gets ripped up, then it could be quite dangerous, couldn't it? Very, particularly for a country like Australia. If you think about Australia, we're a very small nation. We don't we don't have the luxury of getting our way simply because we're we're big. Um, so we do very much rely on 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 the international rules, um, as do many other uh, countries around the world as well. And and so so you're absolutely right that the the rules are well they they have underwritten Australian success for uh, the best part of uh, 50, 60 years. And, um, you know, we hope that they will do in the future. You say that, you know, Australia has a lot to fear from protectionism because we're a small open economy. But do you think if things went actually quite well, you know, if China and the US did a nice, cosy deal to manage trade, could that be also bad for Australia? It's very possible. Uh, and I think this is one of the biggest, biggest concerns is in addressing the trade imbalance that, that Trump has pointed to between China and the US. And that's in and of itself, not necessarily a bad thing, having a trade imbalance. I mean, Australia has surpluses with China. We have deficits with uh, with the US. Um, this this is how global trade works. But but certainly, you know, in trying to address that deficit that that the US has with with China, it's a very large deficit. The only way that they could really do that, I think, is 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 looking at some very large areas of trade, and that that almost certainly will involve energy. And if you think about one of our largest and fastest growing uh, exports to China is LNG um, and, and potentially coal as well, could be two areas that could get hit quite hard in any deal that Trump does with, with um, China. There's a lot of attention on the US and China. What do you think about other nations in Asia? You're very experienced in Asia. You know, what would Japan and Korea and India, Indonesia be thinking about this US-China trade tension? Yeah, well, Trump has um, you know has targeted uh, allies as well as China. It's not just China in the firing line um, over trade, and of course, how global value chains work these days. Um, many components are manufactured in Southeast Asia. They, they go to China, um, they're they're assembled in China, and then shipped to end markets in in the US. So, so any actions that are taken uh, by the Americans that affect China almost by definition affects Southeast Asia, which has now become a, a very important factory in the world um, uh, of trade. And of course, Trump withdrew the US from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Now, that must be of some concern, for instance, to Japan, because they've been championing this sort of pact. Yeah, hugely. And and in fact, uh, you know, Trump has, has asked Japan is in the process of negotiating a, a bilateral trade deal with, with Japan. Uh, at the moment, Australia and, and the other members of the uh, TPP, you know, have preferential access to the Japanese market as a consequence of of signing up to TPP. It's something that the Americans don't have at the moment. So Trump is seeking to gain uh, that access. So if you think about Southeast Asia in that context, countries like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia is already in. Indonesia has indicated that it would look at coming in. Uh, Thailand have talked about 
coming in. So there's a, a coalition of um, economies in Southeast Asia um, that are either in TPP or looking actively at joining the TPP. Do you think Australia's got too many eggs in the China basket? I'm not sure that we have a great deal of choice. Um, you know, our trade, our total trade with China uh, is is heavily dominated by uh, the exports of iron ore and coal and, and more recently LNG. Um, you know, the reality is, is that there are no other markets who are buying uh, those, those products. So if we don't export to China, the question is, who do we export those products to? And if you think about our services exports, which are also another significant component of our, our trade with China, principally education and tourism, um, you know, we don't get to choose which students come to Australia. Universities have tried for many, many years to get students from Indonesia, from India, uh, other parts of Southeast Asia. But the reality is China has 1.2, 1.3 billion people. Uh, they like to come to Australia. They like our education system. We can't turn them away. Now, PwC has a pretty substantial practice in international trade across Asia. What have your clients been telling you about the trade war? Have they been battening down their hatches or they just sort of taken a very cautious approach to it? Well, I think, you know, like most people, they're concerned by this um, trade conflict because, you know, we don't really know where it's all going to end. Uh, at the moment, there's a, a huge degree of uncertainty. You know, if you're making investments, you're generally making 15, 20, 30-year investments it's very difficult to do that in uh, circumstances where you don't actually know what the rules of the game might be, uh, you know, going forward. So, so it is really important. Um, going back to your original question about rules that you know people following rules that that we we know and are established, but also that there's a degree of certainty around um, you know what those rules are going to be. Do you think the presidential election that will be coming in twenty twenty means there has to be? A settlement because you don't want to go into re-election with this brewing around, or do you think, on the contrary, they they want conflict? Well, I think it's a very difficult question to know for sure what the answer is. I guess on the one hand, you would you know you would think naturally running into an election period that settlement would be on the cards, but you know on the other hand, if you look at where Trump's um, support base came from in in his original election, which surprised you know most commentators, I think. Um, you know, there's every likelihood that conflict actually um, serves a purpose in, you know, in that, that constituency. And so I, I'm not sure that, um, you know, that, that the US are going to necessarily run to a solution. And, and I, I certainly don't believe that the Chinese are going to accept a solution, which is likely to be long lasting and likely to satisfy Washington. So the stance that the president's taking, even being seen to take a hard line, could be even contrary to his constituency's interests. You know, soybean farmers in Wisconsin could be hurting, but they like someone standing up to China. Yes, that that's absolutely right. And um, it's interesting that actually China have been very, very um, targeted in their responses as well. And um, you know, if you look at the the products that you know China has targeted for retaliatory measures, uh, they've been laser focused on responding to that constituency. So, so the pain is being inflicted on the constituency, but the polarisation in this debate is is so significant that the base for people like Trump is very, very difficult to move. Uh, and he's certainly not going to do a, a simple deal. 
If he does a simple deal with China, which China may accept, you know, I don't know that that's going to address the longer term strategic issue, which which fundamentally the Trump administration and many, many in Washington agree with this view, that China is a dangerous strategic threat. We did write the art of the deal, so he's got a real big one coming up. <laughs> Absolutely, he has um, probably none bigger and, and none more important for Australia. So, Andrew, if I was a small and medium-sized business owner out there, and you're advising me, what would you suggest that the trade war could have some impact? And secondly, what tips would you give me for going into China? Yes, yeah, so certainly there is potential for the trade war to have, have an impact. Um, it could be positive and it could be negative. So, so you, you do have to, I think, just look and, 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 and wait and, and, and be careful in, in your decision-making. So on the positive side... Um, you know, we've seen many examples where Chinese consumers re- have reacted quite badly to circumstances where their government has been challenged. And we've seen this with Korea and, uh, you know, Norway and other countries that have, and Philippines that have fallen and crossed China in a political sense. So, so there's a very real possibility that for many Australian producers, particularly in food products and, uh, you know, baby formulas, vitamins, things like that, you know, their biggest competitors actually come from America. Those brands may well not be as popular with Chinese consumers in the future as they have been in the past. So, so that, that, that could produce an opportunity. The, the risk, of course, is, is that any deal which is done, um, you know, involves the US selling more of, of a particular commodity or product to uh, China, uh, that, that may well be a competitive threat to an Australian brand as well. So balancing up, you know, your particular niche in that China market is really important. And it's important for two reasons. One is just to re- recognise that some of these trade disputes may spill over and impact your business. Um, but perhaps even more importantly, for any company going into China, you have to understand that it's a very, very crowded market. You know, on the e-commerce platforms alone, there's something like 20,000 international brands. So, so if you're a small Australian company with a small Australian brand, you know how am I going to get noticed in a market of 1.3 billion people? Is a very significant question for any any company thinking about stepping into China. It looks like a big market, looks like a fantastic market for most companies, but you've got to be prepared for the cost of entering that market. And does PwC have offices in China and here in Australia that can help? Yes, we have um, something like 15,000 people based in China uh, across you know, multiple cities, the tier one cities and, and some smaller cities. And, and of course, here in Australia, 7,000 people, all of the capital cities uh, in, in Australia are, are covered by our network. So, so we have a very significant network of uh, people that can help you if you're thinking about going to China. Andrew Parker, PwC, thanks for your insight. Thank you, Tim. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. 
I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.